and welcome to Cinemusts, the podcast where we debate the must-see status of the films included in the book A Thousand and One Movies You Must See Before You Die, and listeners decide if they should be included on the list of essential cinema. I'm belligerent pulp novelist Mike Emmel, and I'm very excited to welcome my co-host for tonight's episode. You all know him as one of the rotating hosts on Best Picture Cast. He is making his Cinemusts debut on this very episode, recording from atop a Ferris wheel. It is Oz. Oz, welcome to Cinemusts. Mike, thank you uh, so much for having me on Cinemust. Uh, love the show, and this is my uh, this is my first time out of the BPC bubble, so go gentle on me. I'm I'm gonna do my best as we'll get into that one's uh, not totally up to me, but I'm I'm stoked to have you here, man, and welcome. Uh, usually, you know, on this show, I when I have someone coming back, I like to plug like, oh, it was so super fun to have you last time. We we don't have that luxury, but I wondered. You you are a staple on Best Picture Cast. You you're a beloved co-host. So to to plug the show and to whet people's appetite in case they aren't checking out Best Picture Cast, I wondered if you could share with us what you feel the the essential Oz episode of Best Picture Cast is. Wow, I, I appreciate that's a great intro. You really that you're bumping my confidence today. I love this. Um, but most recently, we uh, we covered uh, Driving Miss Daisy, which may not be the most fun movie in the world, but we had a really fun discussion about that movie. I would check one, check that one out. That that's a recent one. Uh, another one that that pops up is uh, the How Green Was My Valley, which is the movie that beat Citizen Kane for Best Picture, which certainly has connections to what we're covering tonight. Yeah, and you're, um, where do you stand on How Green Was My Valley? I forget the split on that one. I like it. I, I'm, I'm, I'm a, uh, a supporter of How Green Was My Valley. Okay, you're, you're pro win for, for Green Was My Valley. All right, I, and I, I really like that episode because that is not the conventional wisdom, and so it was very fun to listen to that episode where the hosts were actually split and saying, hey, listen, How Green Was My Valley has some stuff going for it. I'm a John Ford fan. Some movies of his more than others, but awesome, man. Um, thank, thank you for uh, you know stepping up, and you, you've earned every bit of that confidence. So Best Picture Cast is a great show. I always look forward to when you're on. And uh, I'll make you do Kieran's work for him. Where can folks find Best Picture Cast if they're interested? Any, anywhere you can uh, you get podcasts, Spotify, uh, Apple Podcasts. Um, we're also on Twitter um, at BP, uh, BPC Cast. Um, that's our most active. There is an Instagram account, but we go to Twitter. That that's the the most active uh, account there is, and and it's very Kieran's very good at uh, responding. So, if you have any thoughts, love, hate, or otherwise, shoot a message. We'll get that. He deals with all the fallout from your hot takes. It's a very good system. Okay, yes, I could I could just right. talk and talk and talk. I don't have to deal with any ramifications. It's perfect. It's the dream, the American dream. That's like I'm going to do tonight for you. Well, it's yes, sir. I'm I'm very excited. So, hey, let's get into housekeeping, dude. Welcome for your first time. I'm super excited for tonight's episode. And also, everybody listening, welcome back to y'all, too. Uh, we are very glad to have you guys here because the mystery we need your help unraveling is which movies truly deserve a spot on the list of essential cinema. And to determine if tonight's movie is going to make the cut, we are leaving it up to all of you to follow us on our various social media pages. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can find us on any of them by searching for Cinemusts. And uh, how the show works is each movie we cover gets voted into one of three tiers. At the top tier are the Cinemusts. These are movies that at some point in their life you recommend absolutely everybody see. In the middle tier are the Cinetrusts, which are movies that may be good, maybe bad. 
but you only recommend some people see them and not everybody. And in the bottom tier are the Cinebus, which movies that might be terrible, they might be okay, but you don't recommend anybody see them. There's just a better way for folks to use their time. So it's going to be on all of you to decide if tonight's movie makes the upper echelon, if it lands in the middle tier, or if it busts out. Um, and Oz, this is this is a fun one. You, you are now our third entry in this game we're playing that I still don't have a snappy title for, where... Uh, a bunch of BPC hosts have come on and you guys have picked movies for each other. So not only are you coming in totally green to cinema, but you didn't even get to pick your own movie. So I, I applaud you for your bravery. So your, uh, your film tonight has been chosen by uh, Grant, your, your cohort at BPC, who was on our last episode discussing Michael Curtiz's Mildred Pierce. And uh, I, I wondered if you're cool, if we could turn it over to Grant here. He's going to explain to us what he's chosen for you and why. Let's do it. Hello out there in Cinemust world. This is yours truly. Now, Oz, you and I have been friends for nearly 30 years at this point. You are the best man at my wedding. And it has only become clear to me now over recording Best Picture cast, that you don't like black and white cinematography. Uh, this is a massive issue. Out of all the years we've been friends, this is the most embarrassed I've ever been for you, which is saying a lot. So when I got the pleasure of picking your movie, I went with a film noir that maybe has some of the best black and white cinematography I've ever seen. And that is Carol Reed's The Third Man. So I hope you enjoy it. I hope you enjoy discussing it with Mike. It is a incredible film with so many layered performances, so many layered themes, and just absolutely incredible cinematography. If you don't like this movie and the way it looks, Oz then I don't think we can be friends any longer. Just saying. Take care. <laughs> Thoughts and reactions. A lot of pressure. I, I know, right? I've, I've never had a, a, li- a decades-long friendship writing on an episode, so... Mike, there's a lot on the line tonight. <laughs> so we'll, see, we'll see what we can do with it then. Um, so, Oz, uh, a couple things on that before we get talking the third man. Uh... What's the deal? Not a fan of black and white cinematography? What's up with that? This all stems from that How Green Was My Valley um, episode. And uh, we had a little uh, dispute as to how, how good it looked. I, th- I think Grant, who was on it, and, and Kieran, there was a lot of uh, you know the backgrounds contrasting with the foreground discussion. And uh, uh, I, didn't, I didn't love it as much as them. And, and re-listening to the episode, I don't... I don't think I sounded great, to be honest, in my explanation. <laughs> so I got a little reputation, and here we are. Okay, so this is not—you uh, don't sit in, you know, your room at night and stew over how bad black and white movies look. This is really kind of an isolated thing that you're just trying to to live down. Y- yes, yes, more, more, more or less, I would agree with that. Well, great. Well, um, you know, one, we, we recommend Mildred Pierce, the movie Grant covered last week. He specifically called out the cinematography if, if uh, tonight makes a believer out of you. But I'm, uh, I'm really excited for this one. This is a heavy hitter on uh, the sign off of last episode. I, I told Grant, like, I'm very grateful 
but also damn you were <laughs> my exact words to him because third third man is uh the big leagues and uh I'm very excited to talk about it tonight. So uh let's get into it if if you're open to it. Let's go. All right. So everybody listening, uh if you have not seen the third man, hang with us for a couple minutes because the first section of the show is totally spoiler free where we try to give you a little background information. Uh, general impressions. Uh, Oz and I are going to vote the third man into one of the three tiers I explained earlier, Cinemust, Cinetrust, or Cinebust, and we each have to give three reasons apiece for why we voted into the category we did. And once we're there and we've laid down our opening arguments, we'll get into spoilers and we'll give you guys a warning. So hang tight for, for a couple of minutes here while we give you the skinny. On Carol Reed's The Third Man from 1949, and Oz, I'm a, I'm a cruel taskmaster I make my guests give the plot summaries. So I wondered if you could be so good as to tell the folks, uh, what's the third man about? No problem. And this is, um, this, this is a little, little bit of a tricky one, trying to stay spoiler-free in the description. Um, you know, brief and spoiler-free for a noir is, 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 is tricky, but I'll give it a shot uh, on, a, on, a, on a couple lines here. Uh, all right. Holly Martins, a broke American author, accepts a job from his childhood friend in a divided post-war Austria. Holly learns of his friend's death immediately upon arrival, and his suspicions lead him into a dangerous underground where he believes he is uncovering conspiracies and ends up learning some uncomfortable truths about his friend. So, Oz, before I make you uh, give your your vote, I always like to kind of know where hosts are coming from in their terms of their relationship to the movie. So, is this a first time watch of the Third Man for you? Is this an old favorite? Somewhere in between? What's your history with the Third Man? No, it is uh, firmly a first uh, experience with with the Third Man. All right, so first time out of the gates, um, and first time on the show for a heavy hitter. So, I this makes me all the more curious, dude. Between a Cinemust, a Cinetrust, and a Cinebust. Where would you place the third man? Yeah, I mean, immediately Cinebust is not in consideration for this this movie. Um, and I did okay. land on I did land on Cinemust. Takes the stand. Okay. Uh, well, if you could uh, boil that down to like three main reasons why, what would you say? The um, I'm going to hit number one with the uh, the the performances um, of, and I'm going to I'm going to narrow it down to what I'm calling the big four performances um, in these movies. And I just I'm going to I'll roll off the characters uh, with with Holly, um, with Major Calloway, with Anna and, of course, with uh, Harry Lyme. Excellent. Is that is that all one reason or are they? That's, that's no, I just I, I grouped in performances as number one. Uh, gotcha. Back to those four so we don't get, uh, you know, bogged down and talking about every every character and the whole thing. Tactical and efficient. Uh, and then number two, um, I, I, I loosely uh, stated already that you know there, there's some difficulties with with uh, these kind of t- twisty movies with the, with the heavy plot twist. Um, but I think this one's paced perfectly, and I think the tone is perfectly um, uh, stated throughout the movie. That's my number two: the pacing of this and the tone. All right, and number three. Number three, I'll, I'll go into the obvious. Um, the cinematography is is, uh, is definitely um, uh, very impressive, to say the least. All right, so it sounds like we're saving a friendship tonight. Yeah, yeah, we're all good, and I probably don't. I probably won't get kicked off the show now, too. <laughs> Great box checked. All right, well, that is uh, that is high praise from a first time watch, and I, I'm really glad you enjoyed it. I'm excited to talk more about those points. 
especially because they mimic a lot of mine. So to give my vote, I too very firmly am cinema must on the third man. I think everybody's got to see it. And uh, I overlap with you on, on two of the three. Uh, my first reason it's a must see is that an interlocking cast of characters. I, I desperately wanted to narrow this down to, uh, to one performance and I, I really can't shove anybody out of the limelight. I would feel bad. Even a couple of the minor characters I want to talk about. So the whole cast I think is great. Reason number two, the third man is film noir that's fun. By definition, <laughs> film noir is not known for being a fun genre. It's known for being enjoyable, uh, but it's a, it's supposed to be dark. But I find The Third Man serves as an effective film noir. It's a classic film noir, but I have a giddy, great time with it. And uh, my third reason in terms of just the theme, the messages, I, I feel like The Third Man is, is the epitome of of like post-World War II ethics and then the crisis of identity and faith and all these things that came with the end of World War II. I think the third man is overtly about them. It's about tackling them. It works through them. And so I feel like in terms of just being a historical bookmark, it kind of nails that zeitgeist too. So just a couple, I, I easily could have thrown uh, the cinematography is like reason for, for me, it looks great. So I think this is going to be kind of a gush fest. For us, I don't know that we have a lot of negative things to say about the third man, but I'll try to nitpick where I can if that's what folks are into. Um, I d- I could join you with a couple nitpicks when we get around to it, certainly. Yeah, nothing's perfect. And I mean, I, I don't know that folks will necessarily want it because, like I mentioned, this is a heavy hitter often regarded as one of the all-time great film noirs, and if not the all-time great movies. The American Film Institute had it on their list of top 10 mysteries. On the most recent Sight and Sound poll, I think it's uh, 65 greatest movie of all time, which I think it dropped a couple places. So it has always been highly regarded. <laughs> um, so we are, we are saying nothing new with our praise here, but to say the least, we recommend the movie to absolutely everybody. Agreed. And so, and so if you haven't seen it and you're trying to find it, if you are a subscriber to the Criterion channel or want to score a free trial, it is streaming there. Uh, infamously, uh, an out-of-print Blu-ray Criterion fans, we are jonesing for the day that the rights for the third man come back so we can get a good 4K release of that. But if you're not a Criterion channel subscriber, you can find us pretty easily streaming on any of your video-on-demand services. It's four-buck rental, and with two Cinemust votes, it sounds like it's going to be four bucks well spent. So... Oz, I want to get talking spoilers here. Like you said, it's a movie really hard to gush about if we can't be talking the specifics of the plot. But before we do that, is there any last spoiler-free thing you would want to say to anybody to whet their appetite for the movie or just or something you feel needs to be addressed here? No, I think we can jump into the specifics. Excellent. I've got nothing else to say then except see it if you haven't. And if you have, See it again because it's super rewarding. the The more you watch it, it just gets better and better. It's one of those movies. So let's let's leave it there then. For those of you who haven't seen the Third Man, go ahead and give us a pause right now. Go check the movie out. Come back and uh, come back and hear our thoughts once you've seen it. Because from here on out, we are talking spoilers for the Third Man. Did the uh, police believe you? You don't care anything at all about Anna, do you? <laughs> I've got quite a lot on my mind. You wouldn't do anything. What do you want me to do? Oh, Be reasonable. Somebody else do. You expect me to give myself up? Why not? It's a far, far better thing that I do with the old limelight, the fall of the curtain. No. 
Golly, you and I aren't heroes. The world doesn't make any heroes. You've got plenty of contacts. Outside of your stories. I've got to be so careful. I'm only safe in the Russian zone. I'm only safe here as long as they can use me. As long as they can use you. I wish I could get rid of this thing. So that's how they found out about Anna. You told them, didn't you? Don't try to be a policeman, old man. What do you expect me to be? Part of your... You can have any part you want as long as you don't interfere. I've never cut you out of anything. I remember when they raided the gambling joint and you were safe way out. <laughs> sure. Yeah, safe for you, not safe for me. Old man, you never should have gone to the police, you know. You ought to leave this thing alone. Have you ever seen any of your victims? You know, I never feel comfortable on these sort of things. Victims? Don't be melodramatic. Look down there. Would you really feel any pity if one of those... Dots stop moving forever. If I offered you 20,000 pounds for every dot that stopped, would you really, old man, tell me to keep my money? Or would you calculate how many dots you could afford to spend? Free of income tax, old man. Free of income tax. The only way you can save money nowadays. A lot of good your money will do you in jail. That jail's in another zone. There's no proof against me. Besides you. Okay, so Oz, I'm I'm really excited to talk about this. Um, I, I've I've gushed about the Third Man a lot, but to be honest, the Third Man is always a movie I feel I should love more than I do. I, I openly acknowledge it's it's a great movie. It's it's a masterpiece, but it's always been one of those ones that like it wouldn't really make my top fifty. Not for anything that it's deficient in, but just because my my heart never gravitates to it. So I'm very excited to talk to somebody on a first time watch who has gravitated towards it who says it's a cinema must and uh, the point that i'm kind of most excited to hit in that regard is you said you just loved the pacing and the tone you felt like it was just walking a tightrope and doing it perfectly every step of the way so i wondered if we could start there what's what's so great about the plot what's so great about the tone what are all the right steps that this is making in the story it tells Sure, it strikes a it strikes a good balance um right off the right off the bat with the narrator just telling you you know where where we are in the world, you know, where we are in the time period, um, what our main character is doing there, but it doesn't dump too much on you to make the make the plot um, too obvious or uh, too too much with the the dreaded exposition dump that we uh, we always talk <laughs> about. So it, it doesn't it doesn't do that, but it tells you where we are um, and tells us what's going on, and away we go right off the bat. If I can dovetail as, you know, right off the bat is my point about how this is film noir that's fun because we have uh, one thing I think contributes to this is just the soundtrack that the, the whole score is done on the zither and it's that plucky, fun and, you know, we, we don't have moody saxophones on the streets at night. You know, everything is kind of upbeat with this, even when horrific revelations are coming to pass that maybe my friend didn't die accidentally. Maybe it was murder that's accentuated with zither music. Um, discovering that my best friend actually isn't dead. He faked his own death. That's accentuated with zither music. So we get to see that, you know, playing over the credits. But then in film noir fashion, we have our voiceover, but we are eschewing the the typical, the gruff, you know, I met Harry Lyme when we were boys. Holly never even gets a voiceover. We We have Carol Reed himself doing this weird, almost throwaway, just I, I, I don't know how to describe it, except it feels like what's being said to us 
if we're like drinking at a bar next to a stranger and he just starts striking up this conversation about, I never knew Vienna in the old days and walking us through the world, establishing it's the four zones and uh, already like laying out a dark sense of humor. I love the line where he's talking about the racketeering and saying everybody did it. The work attracts amateurs, but they can't stay the course like a professional. And as he's saying this, we have the body floating in the icy river is already this like really dark, and then the whole thing is like, oh, wait, I was going to tell, tell you about Holly Martins. And from there, we, we drop voiceover and we start following Holly. And it's already just from the get go, the director with this giddy, weird voiceover that never comes back, just kind of sets this thing up for kind of being fun, establishing that it's a dark story. We've, we've introduced death. We've introduced desperation. We've introduced it's a, a city in ruins after the war. So it's not like he's sugarcoating anything. I think the tone is just so well balanced. Absolutely, and and when you said fun, um, the first thing I, I thought of was was the the zither uh, soundtrack. You're, you're absolutely right. Um, it's important in these movies too to to kind of don't beat around the bush. You know, it, it's I think that's a it's a it's a perfect way um, where where the where Holly's um, friend you just you learn you learn Holly's friend is dead right off the bat. And it just gets right. You you want to get right to to the point of uh, where the characters are going in, in these types of movies for sure. Yeah, and, and like you said, like in terms of plot, I don't know. I don't know how you felt about following the story, but I think it's like you. I mean, you said it. Waste no time. It's like Holly gets off the train. I'm going to my buddy's house. He offered me a job, and then it's instantly like he's dead. <laughs> <laughs> like the the fourth scene is like you're you just made it in time to to watch him lower the casket into the ground. So it really hits the ground running, introducing us to everybody. And I love the burial scene for how economic it is because we really have like all of our major players right there at the gravesite. We we have Anna, we have Callaway, we've got Kurtz, uh, Doctor Winkel. You know, we have like almost everybody we're going to need to know right there. Yeah, it's, it's, it's just like textbook. Yeah, and the conflict really, really begins, you know, on first impression between Callaway and uh, and Holly. So you can feel the tension right away, and kind of away we go with with, with them too. So this this was a question I wanted to ask. Uh, just the the movie unravels. You know, Holly, as we'll discuss in his character. He he comes in kind of trying to play one of the heroes in his own novels or, or maybe the hero of like a, a good old Humphrey Bogart detective story that he's a brash American who's going to fight the system to unravel the truth. And, and as we learn, he's kind of a bumbling idiot and, um, and, and everybody we've kind of been led to distrust is really good. And I, I wondered on your viewing when, when we first meet Calloway, like what what were your impressions? Were you thinking he was hiding something did you follow along with holly thinking he was going to be our our bad guy or what was your read on the situation the first time that they have that drink together yeah i gotta be honest the uh, first impression i thought i thought callaway was the quote-unquote bad guy i was i was where uh the holly character was uh right right off the bat and i think that's great because i mean trevor noah does a great job of playing him with utmost british snootiness <laughs> it's he just has such a hateable vibe about him that you're like, oh, that guy, we're going to get that guy. That's going to be the point of the movie. Right. And then we are, you know, 
this is how the movies usually work. You know, hey, there's corruption in the system. Fight law and order. Uncover the truth. Um, which is another great, I think, another thing that makes the movie have a lasting legacy is it kind of bucks that trend to say, like, you know, institutions aren't the worst. Right. It, it spins kind of your expectations throughout the throughout the movie, which 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 makes it so watchable. To kind of segue into another point of yours, I don't if we have more on the tone and the plot, but I think this is another time we can start talking about the characters we love because that's a point on both of our ends. I I just I can't not talk about any of the cast, and you specifically said the four like leading players are your heavy hitters. So I don't know if this is where you want to bring them up, or if you want to talk a little more on the plot, and we'll see where they go. No, no, I think we can. I think the the, the plot will be uh, we'll we'll be talking about the plot. So, we, so we, when you said uh, earlier that you know you, you had you had trouble picking picking one, um, I think that that's a great point because these all these characters um, they they really enhance each other. Like they they're good separately, um, but but together they they just complement and enhance each other so well. Yeah, that's exactly why I called them like this interlocking web, because there's there's nobody that strikes me as just the comic relief or the the weird foil. Everybody connects in some way. Everybody serves a purpose towards one another. And the richness of the story, I think, is built off of how they all interweave with each other and support each other and whatever they're trying to do or how they stop their each other from doing that to the point you know t- just talking about this scene with Callaway in the bar i mean sergeant Payne, i love him <laughs> he, you know his his thing is basically he is the the tough military policeman in, in a lesser movie he's just the muscle but you know we instantly get that juxtaposition talking about tone where he clocks holly cold when he tries to attack Callaway, and then he helps him back up and then instantly he says, like, you're Holly Martin's the writer. I'm a huge fan of your books. And so he becomes this, like, fun little foil. He's he's effective. He's tough. And then, you know, by the end, he's kind of the guy whose fate helps you root for the downfall of Harry because he's killed by Harry. And seeing Sergeant Payne, who we love, go down, I, I don't mean to sound insensitive, but it hits a little harder than just the faceless, nameless dots that we're told harry has you know been responsible for the deaths of you know there's just something about sergeant payne's death that makes us go okay harry's got to be stopped yeah, they, they developed him into uh kind of kind of like an ally for for the viewer and he's just he's just so sweet i, I love a muscle guy with heart oh of course, of course who doesn't so out of your big four if, if you're okay with it i'd actually like to save harry talk for a little later since he, uh, you know, famously doesn't show up for an hour. <laughs> um, so, so out of these these three, who do you love most? Who should we talk about? I, I think it's Joseph Cotton as, as Holly. Just hit, hit the lead. Um, I, I, he plays frantic so well. He, he's, yes. He, 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 like you said it before. He thinks he's the hero. He thinks he's solving, you know, all these, these things. And he gets obsessed and, he, and he's just completely frantic. Um, and you can kind of feel that. you can feel that with you know the way he acts, and then what we'll what we'll talk about with you know the, how they how they shoot his uh, you know how they shoot him when, when when he just loses his mind. Do you feel um, Cary Grant could have done this part? <sighs> Probably, but I I just I think that Cotton did it so well that I would hate to I would hate to replace him, you know. 
Like what? Yeah. It's almost like don't 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 fix it if it's not broken, kind of deal. Yeah, exactly. Well, I asked because that was the uh, the dream casting. You know, Joseph Cotton was nobody's first choice, and uh, you know, I I don't want to say no. Nah, there's no way he could have done it because Cary Grant has been able to pull off a a believable kind of bumbling, lost in the mystery guy. You know, with with things like North by Northwest. So I don't want to say he couldn't do it, but there's just I I feel terrible for saying this, but I really wanted to give a shout out to Joseph Cotton. I almost made him just one of my three reasons the movie's a must see because he doesn't get enough credit. I, I myself have been guilty of calling the third man an Orson Welles movie. I did it on a early episode we did on Odd Man Out, which is another Carol Reed movie. And I said, you know, Carol Reed did the third man. That's an Orson Welles movie. Orson Welles is in this movie for eight minutes tops. And he was a pain in the ass for shooting. So I'm like, poor Joseph Cotton who really does carry the movie, but he kind of carries it because he is believable as kind of a, somebody who could be taken by the whims of stronger personalities as somebody who can be belligerent and blustery and be kind of a lovable idiot. And that's, I it feels so bad to say, I love his performance because he nails this, but it's like, it's hard for me to picture somebody else nailing this right he just he, he does he, he's obsessive um and he's just he, he's really just bad at unfortunately the the the, the holly character is just so bad at reading people and I, I, <laughs> joseph Patton really pulls that off pretty well yeah do, do you have a favorite holly martin's moment yeah when he's in the um when he gets pulled into the taxi to go to the, the speech um about his books <laughs> and he's completely convinced that he's got I think in his head he thinks he's going to go get killed because Major Calloway has had enough about him. <laughs> Instead, he's got to go talk about his westerns. That's that's his scene of the movie for me too. Actually, his it's right after it's it's him in the uh, conference. Just because, again, speaking of how he can do so little right, he, he's a writer. I know it's it's not the type of writing he's used to, but he can't even budge his way through this. He can't even pretend he's heard of James Joyce. Or, uh, you know, the, the crisis of faith. But also, you know, we have that great dialogue where Pepesco, I think is his name. They they have that great subtextual dialogue about, uh, are you engaged with a new book? Yes, the third man. It's a murder story. And, and that great back and forth. About, have you ever, or is it more fact or fiction? You should stick to fiction. It's just a great scene. He He really plays the bumbling and then like the cocky, assured private citizen on the investigation he kind of gets like the best of both worlds in that one scene yeah exactly i, I love that when they're, they're they're talking about the third man they're kind of like winking at each other you know which is great um i i feel like i'm being mean to him do you i, I kind of said like i don't feel that holly is very good at anything do you do you feel like there is something that holly is actually quite skilled at no i because I, I i think he well, I guess he's willing to stand up to his friend. Ultimately, that's nice. But up until that yeah, part, you know, it, it, he had to get—he really had to get hit on the head with what, what was going on before he believed <laughs> what was going on. You know, like he had to actually several times see all the see all the kids. You know, to, to believe that his friend is uh, a problem. Yeah, <laughs> and and I'll say that you know he he needs the extra motivation to actually pull the trigger. I, I guess pun intended, um, but you know, he, um, when he finally has the, the indisputable evidence, which is kind of another fun montage with the zither music of the insurmountable hard evidence, the police are presenting him with that. No, Harry did it. He accepts it. He does say like, ah, 
okay, like I can't dispute it. Um, and yeah, turning against, you know, your best friend. I, I think there's a great relationship established in the wings, you know, for the, for the power Harry has, not just over Holly, but over everybody. Cause I think we see it in the character of Anna too, that Harry just has charisma out the wazoo and he can cast a spell on folks. And you just through simple lines of dialogue, Joseph Cotton has about, you know, I was never so lonely in my life before I met Harry. And just these old stories, you know, because Holly overtly says, you know, I remember the gambling house that got raided and you found a safe way out for you, but not for me. So it's like he has been burned before and yet he's still, you know, he's loyal to this guy until the point that he is met with irrefutable evidence time and again until it's literally staring him in the face. It, it, it's funny, though, at the same time, he's got he, he definitely has some loyalty um, to, to Harry. Um, but then at the same time, while he's investigating uh, the death, he's falling in love with his, Harry's girlfriend. And um, not doing a bang up job. <laughs> it's it's I don't know about you. These are some of the most painful flirting scenes in any movie ever, I think. And not because they're poorly done, but just because of the situation. He is hopelessly Twitterpated. And oblivious to the fact that she is not interested. <laughs> it's awkward and uh, I hate to say it, but borderline a bit creepy. Um, that he's not, he's just, he's not understanding the, the signs he's getting back or lack thereof. Yeah. Um, and I, I guess to segue to Anna here, because she, she's, she's one of the big four too. She is our, is she our sole, she's not our sole female speaking part, but definitely the only one of substance. What are your what are your takes on Anna? It, it, it was hard to, uh, and in a good way, it was hard to figure out which way she was kind of leaning in this one. You know, I, I really, I really was surprised um, that, that she remained so loyal um, in the end to Harry. I did not think that was the direction it was going to go, um, and I think that's a credit to the character and the performance. Yeah, again, I think that comes from the mood, the writing, the the throwaway lines. You know, as they talk, it's it's so funny that some of their scenes where he's trying to court her, it's really about how they're both kind of in love with the same guy. It's not about him being like, hey, I like you. We should go out sometime. It's more about like, don't we both love Harry so much? Uh, yeah, interesting. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, that, that makes sense. How sh- how's she working for you? I, I guess we're categorizing this as a film noir. She is our femme fatale, uh, at, at least on the surface. You know, how do, how do you feel she's filling the role? Yeah, I think she gives a little depth um, depth to the character, um, a little more so than, than most noirs. Um, just, just based off, you know, she's not this helpless, um, like needs needs to be saved individual, um, which a lot of the a lot of the movies can fall to that trap. You know, she's she can stand up for herself, and you know, at the at the same time, she kind of knows how to you know use people to to get where she needs to go. Because I think, in a sense, she is also using Harry just to, you know, to, to forge the papers and stay where she is. Yeah. But like I said that she is a realist though. She's, she's not really a firecracker that spouts off against the institution. She recognizes the places where it's really best to just keep your head low. And, you know, they, we have a couple of scenes of that where Holly is being belligerent and he's trying to stand up to the military police or whomever. And she was, she, you know, whether she overtly says it or she's just acting with her eyes. She so often is just like, 
please stop. You have no idea how much worse you're making this. She, she's the streetwise character. She's the one who gets how the world really works over here, that it's not about coming in guns blazing and being the, the hero and crusader for justice. It's kind of about like, everybody has to make questionable decisions and that's existence in this post-war climate. And she seems to understand that better than almost any character, I think. She, she's a survivor. And, and I think the, the realist is a, is a great way to describe her because she understands what stuff. She understands who Harry is. She understands who Callie is. She understands that she could be in danger and that she needs all these people um, to survive. Yeah. And as I've heard some people critique the, the plot twist, you know, that they, they have her, she's going to get on the train and she says no because she refuses basically to be the pawn that's bartered with to sell out the man she loves. And I, I like the moment. I really like that she takes a stand on her principles um, because it's something Holly does not do. You know, Holly is wishy-washy all over the place. He gets pushed to and fro and she is just like, no, I'm not going to be your leverage. I'm not going to be the, the, what's, I'm not going to be the currency in this transaction. It's a really great scene. She's a nice contrast to, to Holly and Holly's behavior. Yeah. And I, I just love the little touch that she doesn't play tragedy, that as an actress, she only does these very light comedies. I think that may be just a great bit of characterization that she's depressed enough and doesn't want to take it home, take it to her job or whatever it is. But I just think it's such a nice little character touch for her. Oh, yeah. Yep. Agreed. If, if we can keep rolling here with the big four, Callaway. Callaway was hard to, hard to figure out. Um, and I, I kind of, it was a twist in its own way that he didn't really turn out to be the, the full uh, antagonist in this movie. In, in what way? I, I, we, we kind of teased at it earlier, but what about him was like really leading you to think like, this is the bad guy. He, he's the corrupt. Like, what was leading you down that road? And I guess where was the point where your view of him flipped? When you see him, because initially the way I watched this was really through the eyes of Hallie. I mean, you're seeing it through, you know, that that character's eyes. He's he's the guy that's getting in the way of the truth. Um, and then where it flipped is when you start to realize that, all right, Hallie's uh, this frantic individual that's kind of striking out everywhere. Maybe Major Callaway is, uh, uh, has it correct. And then obviously they they... They really hammer that home the the hospital and with the the, the penicillin uh, reveal. Yeah, that's definitely that's a really good one. I I think the moment he flips for me, because because like I said, he he's like the epitome of uptight British order. Were, were you on the Titanic episode for Best Picture cast? No. Okay, I, I still remember Kieran's impersonation of the officer that keep order i say which is a moment i love in titanic that, that's kind of callaway you know um i think the moment he, he really flips for me is uh after i can't even remember where it is in the story but it's when the russian chief has come in and said uh can, can i get that passport for the schmidt woman and callaway is so reluctant he's like we're not really gonna get her for that are we he you know he's a guy who up to this point has seemed to stand for, this is law and order. We follow the rules. He's the Javert figure, you know, like to the end, I will follow the letter of the law. And that's kind of the moment where he, he acknowledges the realism again, you know, like, look, people are breaking the law left and right here. We got to pick our battles. This is really something we want to do. And it's because he has empathy for Anna. Like he, he's come to respect her. And I think it's right after a meeting with her, even that's, that's always the moment that I'm like, oh, Callaway's kind of a softy. Like he's not, 
the hard-boiled cop we all thought he was. And, and, you know, again, we have the pairing with Sergeant Payne. Yeah, Sergeant Payne can throw a punch, but he likes pulp novels. He likes adventure stories. So we get this, like, really heartwarming, kind of goofy, but really nice view of Law & Order in this movie, which is not where a film noir is expected to take us. Right, and, and he's, you know, he shows flexibility in certain areas. And when he shows that flexibility with the, the passport that you were just, uh, that scene that you were just talking about, um, you know, it shows that, all right, he's not rigid, and maybe he's just rigid with the situation that uh, Holly and Harry are in, and there, maybe there's a reason for it. So yeah, I think that's a good, that's a good place where he, uh, good description of where he flipped. Even there, I admire his patience because, uh, you know, in, in, the, in the third act, when I swear Holly, like, makes up his mind to aid them in capturing Harry, and then he ditches it. I think he goes back and forth, like, three times. But Calloway never gets furious. You know, I, I, I think the traditional version of this role is it's, it's, it's Captain Ahab. And Harry, Harry is the white whale, and he's obsessed. And in a way, Calloway is very obsessed. But he has the patience. You know, when, when Holly is like, I'm out, um, give me the plane. Calloway has a couple lines where he's like, it's, you know, just as well. I'm going to get him eventually. He's he's not freaking out about like, no, you promised, you know, he, and even, you know, you mentioned the scene. He very subtly knows how to get Holly back on and just to take him to the hospital. And I love his dialogue once they've left that where he, he doesn't talk about it at all. He just leans in and starts saying, Payne gave me one of your books. I thought it was pretty good. I didn't know that there were snake charmers in Texas. And he just just knows how to eat at Holly's conscience to get him to do what he wants. And I love just the assurance and the patience. And he's not this obsessive maniac that he's like, I'm going to get him. I'm good at my job. But if you could help me, it'd be nice. He's smart enough to know not uh, not to tell Holly. I told you so. Yeah. So he's, uh, I, I love Callaway. He's he's one that surprised the, the crap out of me the first time I watched it. That I thought I was just going to hate him. He's going to be the stuffy cop. And again, I, I don't want to say like he's, you know, my favorite character or the one that gives me the feels the most because I think everybody has these little observations about them, which is really really great. Yeah, it's nice. That, it's nice that they they at least try not to make um, anybody one dimensional. Like this could have been a horribly one dimensional character. Um, and in, in, in a lot of other places, it, it would be. Um, but here they gave it the depth and they gave it a little surprising, um, uh, the flexibility. Um, they made him well-rounded. Yeah. Do, do you feel there is a character who's painted as very one-dimensional just to serve their purpose in the plot? I don't know think of off the bat. Definitely not out of the, um, out of, out of the, uh, out of the, the main characters. Like, there was nobody that jumped out at me that said, ah, oh, they could have done more with that. I mean, it, you know, it's a 90 minute movie. Um, and I think it's appropriately a 90 minute movie. Uh, so you don't want to introduce too many people. Yeah. A little longer if you're watching the, the OG, the British cut, <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's a very lean movie. I, I agree with you. One of my points was almost going to be just how it's such a lean screenplay. And uh, like there to my recollection, there's really no red herrings, which is usually a staple of, of the mystery movie that we have some false leads. But I think everything comes back in a significant way. Yes, yes, agreed. Um, well, I think Holly was chasing everything down frantically, so that kind of eliminated any red herrings. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, I mean, you know, you'd even think that the the literary society thing, that, that, that that's just like, okay... 
it's a joke to get the, uh, you know, he can stay the night in the hotel. It's, it's just what buys him an extra day to investigate so he can find a clue so we can keep the movie going. But then that comes back in what should be a throwaway scene, but we've talked about it already. It's a great bit for establishing Holly's character. And then we've got uh, uh, Popescu showing up with that exchange and leads into another chase. Like everything just fits. And um, yeah, even even the goons, to go back to my question, I don't think even the goons are one dimensional. I think Kurtz, Popescu, Dr. Winkle, or excuse me, Dr. Winkle, he might be the closest to a one dimensional character for me. He's the one who registers the least to me in my memory. <laughs> but like Kurtz, I love with the Bond villain dog and the talking about it. He loves Holly's book. Popescu is fantastic. Um, even the porter has you know, one of the scenes that lays out kind of the ethics of the movie about how he's, he's, he knows something he hasn't told the police, but he's, you know, basically says it's in this town, you know, there's things that are better left kept to yourself. Even he is more than just like, oh, the, the eyewitness who's got to be killed so we can keep the tension going. Like he's got heart. He has the great contextual mix up where he points up for hell and down for heaven and, you know, establishes it's kind of a world out of whack and topsy-turvy. I, I was considering saying the porter when you asked that question, but I think in the, in the time frame we're in, um, he does represent exactly what's going on with the kind of the upheaval of the uh, location. Yeah, and I feel for the poor guy. He didn't even deserve what happens. It's just hard-working Joe. He doesn't need us to turn it on. He's been through enough. Yeah. Um, so all this to lead, I, I guess, to our, our final four. Orson Welles himself, who, is, as I have mentioned, I, I actually stop watched this. He's in the movie for eight minutes, roughly speaking. And it, it gets a little tricky there because a lot of his stuff is done in uh, long shots, which are famously uh, the assistant director, Guy Hamilton, who would go on to direct uh, Goldfinger and some James Bond movies. Um, because Orson Welles couldn't be bothered to show up for set a lot of the time, and they were tracking him all over Europe trying to get him to show up. So they put Guy Hamilton in a coat and uh, keep the hanger in it so he'd have the broad shoulders. So a lot of the shots we have of Orson Welles running around is just the AD. But he's still, I, I assume he's one of your major four still, right? Absolutely. And it, that, that's, that's funny. Uh, they were chasing him inside the movie and outside the movie, huh? <laughs> yeah, it was a little bit of art imitating reality maybe that's why it worked so well but i, I have him you know despite the uh, short period of time i know it was uh i think it was an hour of screen time before he was even in the movie yep. um which i i was that was completely unexpected to me because i knew he was in this i was like when's orson Welles gonna show up i figured he yes. was harry and yes about an hour in but what an entrance um I mean, the, the, the zither theme for him is, is unbelievably fit. It works yes. so well. It works so well when, he, when he's showing up. It's, it's, it's basically, like, I can't think of a better <laughs> theme for, uh, for, for his appearances in, movie, in this movie. Yeah, I agree. Because again, it's, it's this instrument that has this kind of light sound that's not taking itself too seriously, which is Harry Lyme. Like he's a bad dude who kind of takes impish delights in what he's doing. He's just having fun. He's playing the game. But also I think like the intensity of the instrument, how fast it's being played, kind of some of those high strings have 
can elicit this effect of unease in the viewer. So I do, I agree with you. It's actually a pretty fitting instrument for Harry Lyme as a person. So my, my question to you is, how does an actor with eight minutes of screen time get their way into the top tier performances in the movie? Some of it is just knowing that it is Orson Welles, and in a way, it's a little revisionist. Um, but at the same time, he 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 really does take over the screen when he's on there. It's almost like that this uh, uh, the payoff for waiting for him it, it it works so well. So the the patience. So this goes back to uh, the tone and the balance. Is, is like it's it's a it's a gutsy move. <laughs> like you said, Orson Welles is in the opening credits, and you keep waiting for the flashback. And instead, it's just an hour-long wait until the big reveal is he's been alive. Yeah, and look, sometimes you know, build-up is very important. Um, and yeah, you can you can you know, waiting too long is is uh, before pulling the trigger on something like that could definitely uh, be, be harmful for the overall movie. But the the balance here that he is, you know, this is the guy we're looking for, and here he is is. Uh, uh, is it works i think it works and i love that they you know he, he buried somebody in his grave uh he's running through the sewers and uh you know, the, the scenes that he's in the, the the ferris wheel scene i think is uh just the, oh. the perfect time for them to have have their conflict and the perfect place for them to have the conflict and it's just everything together it was definitely risky but it worked god i i don't know if i'm being hyperbolic so you tell me to pump the brakes but if you're going to ask me to name an example of a perfect movie scene, the Ferris wheel uh, might be up there for me. No, I, I, that's, that's fair. That is a fair statement. Um, <laughs> I, I just love, I love how, how that whole area was empty. Too. There's nobody else there. Right. I mean, it's a dead city. Like, what do you, what do you gonna do? Everybody's scrounging by. Nobody's coming to hang out at the carnival anymore. So, so here's like kind of why I just, I, I legit considered making one of my three reasons the movie's a must-see just this scene. To, and to like to blatantly say like seven minutes, like that's how good these seven minutes are. I, and I think it's because it it is kind of where so much of the movie hinges. Be, because for one thing, like we were talking about, Orson Welles has been tucked away. He's he's the ace up the sleeve, and they've been very patient in the reveal here. Uh, so this is his chance to sign, and really this is his only scene of huge import. Not to say that you know the big chase at the end isn't exciting and fun, but you know this is really the only time Harry Lyme gets to register. So he's really got to nail it, and he's got to nail it on a couple of levels because, like we were talking about, the the spell that Harry casts over so many characters with his charisma is essential for their characters to gel with an audience too we really have to believe that this guy can make this woman love him despite the fact she knows everything he's done that all it's he's worth all the trouble for these conspirators to cover up his death that you know holly isn't a complete buffoon for not just immediately selling him out and i think on this scene you you feel that gravity he has and some of it is because he's quite overbearing he steps on holly's lines left and right but he has this kind of flippant charm that he'll he seamlessly segues between talking about how he can't get his antacid pills to this amazing speech that lays out the whole post-war ethics of 
you know, look down there and look at all those little dots. Can you honestly tell me if I offered you 20,000 pounds for each one that stopped moving, would you honestly tell me to keep my money or would you calculate how many dots you can afford? Like, I'd, I'd want to just repeat the whole thing verbatim because he's laying out the thesis of the movie and he's laying out like the gravity this character has that he's kind of fun, that we're drawn to him, but also that he's an evil guy. And I think he just nails it through and through no missteps you you get this you get the feeling that orson wells is saying all right i'm orson wells and you guys need me and this is me and this is how i'm gonna act and at the same time i'm harry lyme and you all need me within this plot so it, it kind of it kind of works that he's you know he's stepping on lines and he's you know he is who he is and to go back to joseph cotton who we've sadly praised as you know, a pushover. And that's, what's great about his character. But he, there's, there's this great tug of war in the scene that Holly's trying to be tough. He's trying to hold Harry accountable for everything, but he's kind of getting overpowered and they have this great back and forth. And, you know, it's not just this treatise on like how we see the world after two world wars that, you know, people become expendable if they're dehumanized that, you know, charismatic leader can profit off the suffering and death of you know, hundreds of thousands of people. But, you know, we also have this, just the great keeping the, the relationship going, that there's a real threat there that he might throw Holly out of the wheel and they have the great, you know, from this height, I don't think they'd look for a bullet hole. And it's just good, hard tack film noir dialogue. At that stage, I wouldn't have been surprised if Dorothy Wells just shot him or, you know, in some yeah. way, how he met his demise. Yeah, I didn't know where this was going. And and you still believe him. He has a couple moments here where he laughs and says, we're being, we're being idiots. It's not, you know, I can't kill you. You're not going to turn me and we're buddies. And even, you know, the slight throwaway that he's, as much as he said, oh, Anna will be fine. They can't hurt her. How can I help? I'm dead. But, you know, he's, he's writing her name in the foggy glass on the window. You know, he kind of still establishes maybe he's not all cold hearted. Um, he gets, he's, he's, not unflappable. He gets a little shaken when Holly tells him, we, we dug up the grave, we found Joseph Harbin, and, you know, that actually kind of shakes him for a minute, but he kind of bounces off with it, and he gets back to that little grin that's like, okay, well, that's just a new move in the game, and I'm going to have fun making my next step. He's, he's, he's going to be a couple steps ahead of, uh, you know, being on the run. I do have a question for you um, that I was asking sure. myself watching this movie. Uh, kind of goes to character motivations. Why would Harry invite Holly out? That's a great question. I've actually kind of stewed on it a little. So I I think what we're led to believe is that um, Harry Harry didn't know he was going to fake his own death at, at that point. I, I think I think the line Holly gives us in a scene with Anna. I think it's right before Harry is revealed to be alive. Is he's you know saying I've been played for a chump. He was going to have me come right for his medical charity and Holly surmises that that would have given him more credibility so that he can charge 80 pounds a tube of penicillin instead of 70. So I I think there's, you know, this kind of dual reason behind it that, you know, I think they are friends. I think Harry, you know, when he says hello to him when they meet at the fair, so I think he's very sincere. I think he is happy to see his friend. But also, Harry sees his friends in terms of people who he can profit off of or who he can use and so holly kind of fits both those things i think he's kind of been grooming holly their entire friendship together for how he can use him and then i think you know after that letter went out 
something went down. Harry has to go into hiding, so they hatch this whole plot to fake his death. And then I, I think that kind of accounts for the, I don't want to call it lazy, but you know how how Kurtz and Popesco are constantly like, oh, the last thing he said, you know, he was, you need to take care of Holly. You need to get Holly back home to America. And it's like, okay, guys, you're laying it on a little thick there that things didn't go right and you just need him not here digging up dirt. Uh, because again, his his gung ho attitude is what just messes up everything for everybody. That's all right. I'm, I'm, that's a good answer. I was having a little uh, character motivation issues um, watching this a couple times through. Uh, that, that, that's a that's a that's a fair fair answer. I think um, it's that, it's what I've come up with. Yeah, maybe maybe they could have did a little bit. Again, we 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 both like the tone. We both we both like the uh, the pacing and and the time. But maybe they could have developed um, the strength of in some way the strength of uh, Holly and Harry's relationship a little more to explain why Holly's out there and why he's so just like absolutely frantic over this this whole thing. Yeah, I think maybe delivering some of those nitpicks we promised earlier. I agree that the relationship does seem quite toxic, and we have some good throwaways that. You know, maybe honestly, it's it's pitch perfect. Maybe we have everything we need to take some guesses without anything being just too spelled out. But but I agree, there is some reminiscing that I'm like, oh, but I just want to know, like, is is this really just like a domineering relationship? Does Harry just have the charisma to keep Holly in his pocket? Like, what does Harry see in Holly outside of his usefulness? You know, because I, I I've scratched it. I've I've tried to wonder if, you know, Harry does admire Holly for, you know, his, his principles that he lays out, but it's kind of hard for me to buy that because he, he mocks them so openly when he says, you know, the world doesn't work like your stories. You know, we don't see people in terms of human beings. We see them as the proletariat, the people, the suckers, the mugs. And so it's kind of like, at best, it seems like he thinks Holly's world outlook is cute. Like he finds it amusing. It it seems like they're they're vastly different in their values. Um, you know, Harry just seems to consider his relationships more transactional than anything, and uh, Holly seems to, you know, kind of kind of have the polar opposite. But right, who knows? You know, that's that's they left that on. They, they probably left that unsaid um, more on purpose and more not to to bog down the plot. Yeah, I think I, I've always been curious to read Graham Greene's um, novelization of his screenplay because I've, I've read a few Graham Greene novels. I've, I'm kind of lukewarm on him, but I'm such a fan of how tight this story is that I've always wondered if I would enjoy his novelization of the script or if it would just be giving too much away, be making too much explicit because, you know, that's the the realm of the novel is to just outright say this is what this character was thinking. And I've I've kind of avoided it just to be like maybe that's not what i want maybe i want holly and anna and everybody to be kind of enigmatic sometimes it's better to just leave the uh the novels and the movie uh separate yeah as as we potentially covered in last week's mildred pierce episode though i don't regret reading the book um the novel of this one is from from my understanding is from uh major calloway as the uh, the narrator of the interesting and that may have been very intriguing to to put that on screen. I don't I don't know if you're selling it more to me or not because I'm like, 
I'm my knee jerk reaction is like, no, it's it's from Holly's perspective. What works about the story is that it's a mystery. We're with the guy who is lost the whole time, so that we can be equally lost or you know get a step ahead of him. And so you know, following it from the point of view of the guy who actually does have his crap together, I'm like, does that do it a disservice or does it lend a new lens to the story? I I don't know. Time will tell if I ever pick it up. It's not likely a vastly different situation, and um, maybe not as good. So. Yeah, we'll we'll see. I don't know. It's, it's, it'll be a couple years at least. Now that I'm not motivated to have it read before a podcast, that's usually my my impetus to read through a book. Is like I gotta have it by Friday before we record. <laughs> um, you know, one thing we haven't talked about is the cinematography, which is a selling point. It's a reason Brant brought this movie to the table for us. Uh, what what are we going there? How's the movie flexing in terms of its cinematography? Yeah, I'm just gonna now. I'm just gonna argue with myself, um, which I tend to do. Um, so the 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 angles that they use, um, I think it works. Uh, it it works well because it's it's from Holly's kind of perspective, and it, it likely the the way they shot it with the uh, the Dutch angles would not work as well if it was from the, the Major Calloway's perspective. So this was this was a question I was going to ask, and sounds like you've you got a couple of viewings in um so the the dutch angles third man is very it's it's potentially the most famous most well-regarded movie excessively using dutch angles what are your thoughts what's what's the purpose i, I think uh, um to to feel the discomfort of uh of, of what's going on um specifically with holly I think when they, okay. when they do when they do those that you're kind of he's losing reality. Got it. Okay. So follow-up question, do you ever feel like it's overused? Yes. I think they I think they do. This is going into a little little, little bit of our nitpicks. I, I think they, they go into the well one too many times. Okay. Do do you have a specific shot that that broke the camel's back, so to speak, where you were just like enough with this? No, I think it was um, just <laughs> over and over. Nothing, nothing specific because they're all good in, a, in isolation. They're all good shots, um, but when you get to too many of them, maybe it's it's time to pull back on it. I'm of a mixed mind about it because I don't know that I feel it's overused. I I never find it very distracting, which I think is applaudable because I think the Dutch angle is loved because of its showiness, and it typically invites. <sighs> to not take the movie seriously, you know, my, my favorite use of it is in you know, George A. Romero zombie movies. Um, but those invite you know, a, a hokiness to it, you know, and that's not the third man's tone. So for it to use them so widely, but not, you know, be pulling me out as like, Oh, this is a joke. I'm always impressed by, but at the same time, I, I don't know that I identify the visual language because it doesn't seem like there is the cinematic vocabulary for when it's used. I, I went through a second watch and I was trying to find the connective tissue. Like is, is the Dutch angle only used when information seems out of whack or when we're bringing up that the world itself is not the way it used to be that our, you know, post-war ethics where the right and the wrong thing are not so easily to discern. And I, I can't find the connective tissue. It really just feels like they they kind of played it by ear. They they went with their guts. And I do think it works. But at the same time, I'm a little annoyed that I can't put it in a, in a you know cinematic dictionary to say, like, this is when they use the angle. 
but it's Carol Reed's thing. <laughs> you know, we we talked about he uses he uses it in Odd Man Out. I think it's less effective in Odd Man Out. Um, and you know, I I find most things in Odd Man Out less effective. I'm not I'm I wasn't crazy about that movie when we covered it, and I have cooled on it even more. So I I think Carol Reed really stepped up his game for Third Man. But it's not all about the Dutch angles. I just, <laughs> One thing, though, is it is funny. Is it sounds like we are a little bit in William Wellman's camp. Have you have you heard this story about director William Wellman? No. So he's a he's he's been on Cinemus. His movie, The Oxbow Incident, earned Cinemus a great western. Everybody go check it out. Allegedly, he after he saw the Third Man, he sent Carol Reed a, a level with a note that said, "Next time you make a movie, put this on top of your camera." <laughs> Which I think is a great story. <laughs> it has nothing to do with the discussion. I just can't help but share it. That I'm I'm always for fellow filmmakers throwing a little shade at each other once in a while, especially if it's pretty clever. No, I I, um, I think I think that, that in a way could be a a viable criticism. Uh, that it, that it's it's too much, or you know, what's the point? I mean, I don't necessarily agree, but I I can see that perspective. Right. Yeah, I, I I definitely see it, especially from folks who are in the industry and they have their rules. And we've kind of established Third Man is breaking some rules. You know, it's an international production. We have good old David Selznick running things on the American end, being bossy as all get out. But, you know, it's co-funded with uh, British financers made by London Film. So it's in and of itself there kind of breaking some rules. And then in the ways it's flipping the film noir trend. You know, why not throw some things off the X-axis? But it's not its not all about the Dutch angles. What else in the cinematography spoke to you? Yeah, we, we, the, one of the scenes I mentioned before, the, the, the taxi scene on the way to the, uh, the, the, spe- the, the speaking engagement, just the way they use the shadows in the, in the car um, and, the, and the general, um, just the, the, the worriness um, uh, from, from Holly. Um, and that was a, that was a great scene. Um, the Ferris wheel scene, of course, we already we already spoke about. I just love how they they uh, they were able to show the abandoned city. And again, the the the, the hospital scene, um, the choice of not really showing. I mean, they, they probably there's probably many reasons for this, but not really showing the the, the victims of of Harry, uh, but more the reaction of. Uh, of Holly, um, it was a it was a good choice uh, as far as shooting. Yeah, that's a good double dare to the audience. Like, do you really want to see what those kids look like? <laughs> no, I don't. I'm gonna take. It's a, it's a terrible thing to happen. Um, so it sounds like you're a fan of the black and white cinematography. This does not make the same missteps with the contrast that How Green Was My Valley made. No, no, it's, I, I I like what they did here. Because I can't help it, and you're you're a host on an Oscar-centric show, The Third Man took home one Oscar for Best Cinematography, Black and White. I want to real quick, I, I don't know how many you're familiar with, but I got to tell you, man, this is a heavy-hitting year for Black and White Cinematography. We have, as the runners-up, All About Eve, The Asphalt Jungle, The Furies, and Sunset Boulevard. So, uh, you know, Kieran famously says, Best Picture Cast is not a Who Should Have Won podcast. Uh, cinema sometimes is a Who Should Have Won podcast. So, do you think Third Man deserves 
its best cinematography win? So I unfortunately we have not hit all about Eve yet, so I have not seen that one. Um, but yeah, the one I'm most familiar with is Sunset Boulevard, and I and I, and I do think uh, the Third Man deserves it over the over Sunset, certainly. Yeah, um, I'm gonna agree with you. I think I think it earned the statue, and I'm Sunset Boulevard. I lo- I, I think I've had like four shows. We need to just do a Sunset Boulevard show because I love sunset boulevard but i think it's gonna take it again we have a lot of noir stuff here asphalt jungle we have you know crime caper film noir it's an urban setting i think third man beats it out the furies is a western it stars my my gal barbara stanwick it looks great but it's it's not beating robert krasker's work here i think it's top notch dude the shots after harry's been killed the the figure of Holly kind of emerging from the background mist of the sewers framed by the tunnel, like, it's beautiful. It's one of the best shots. Yeah, all the sewer scenes are top-notch. Even something like the simple stuff when he's going up the spiral staircases in the apartment, they shoot upwards. Um, yes. You know, you can kind of, you can kind of, kind of, kind of feel that oh, something's up, you know, and it, it, it's, it's really well done. And um, I'm going to go hyperbolic again a little, but I, I might want to take a stand. I feel this may be the best final shot in any film noir ever. <laughs> because the uh, shot with uh, Anna. Yeah. The, the, it's again to talk about the patience and the confidence to, to start her so far in the background. And just have the patience to, in real time, have her walk to make you as the audience guess, like, is she going to stop? Is she even going to acknowledge him? And for, you know, that to be paid off with, don't even look at him. She's, she zipped right past him, past the camera. And he just really casually does the most film noir thing ever. Takes out the cigarette case, lights up a smoke, and enjoys it. And we just have the the autumn leaves falling. It's not a dark shot. Again, you know, film noir. It's supposed to be dark. It's supposed to be gritty. We're supposed to be seeing steam coming from the vents and stuff. This ends with this row of trees and this autumn. Yeah, this autumn evening. And it's this shot about a love story. And I think it's the most film noir shot I've ever seen. (laughs) At at least as, as a closer. I think it's just magnificent and amazing way to send out the audience i don't blame you for your hyperbole on that one that is that is a great shot and a very really very fitting ending for this movie i'm i'm gonna eat it the next film noir we do that you know we do maltese falcon or sunset but whatever i'm gonna have a new one but it, it just i was just geeking out about it so much you gotta you gotta enjoy what you're watching what you're talking about don't worry about it i sure well it's a fun again it's a fun movie like there's the jokes are, I mean, a lot of the stuff I've been saying, you know, I've been chuckling through a lot of Harry and Holly's lines. Like it's, it is fun. It's plumbing some dark depths. Again, you know, we're talking about people who are profiteering off the suffering of others and how this is kind of a real concern in post-World War II that we, we don't really know what's right and what's wrong anymore. Uh, if it helps me survive, who's to say it's wrong? You know, where's the line? Is Anna a bad guy because she's complicit with what Harry's doing, you know, these, these lines get muddled, but the movie is just a joy. It's quick. It's snappy. The tone never missteps. Like the, 
the quibbles with it really are just that. I don't think there's anything that if I actually had the power to change it, I don't think I would, even if it's just, you know, taking William Wellman's level and yeah, not, not much, not much and not much in this to complain about. You know, it's a, it's a great story about uh, everyone trying to survive in a very destabilized situation, which is uh relatable as ever, unfortunately. And I, th- I think speaks to the movie's staying power. Great mystery. I, I was going to ask you, you did multiple rewatches. Um, did you find the movie rewarding on a second watch or, or were we just kind of like waiting to get to the next point? No, I, see, I have, I have, uh, I have opinions on, on rewatches on movies. Like I think it's important that a movie is, is good on the first watch. Like it shouldn't take multiple watches for it to be good. And then the, the, uh-huh. the second, third watch it enhance it. And I think this is good on the first watch, and then that it enhances. Yeah, I agree. I think there's there's just a lot you see about the characters. The mystery is fun. I, that's that's the the trick of the mystery is I I agree with you. Like I should be kind of stumped. I should be trying to solve it, have a good time first time, but second time, like I've really still got to be entertained. Otherwise, if you're just planting your clues and, you know, I see where you're doing the red herrings and none of it matters to, you know, who these characters are and why I care about them. I don't think, you know, your movie's worth more than one watch. And Third Man is just a joy to go back to again and again and again, whether it's to appreciate the the craft, the mastery of the tone, the confidence in the filmmaking, or whether it's just to enjoy hanging out with these characters that I adore. It's just always a good time. And I, I again, I open by saying, like... I don't love the third man as much as I feel I'm like obligated to, but I'm never going to say no to it. It's, it's always such a fantastic time for me, which, which I'll use. I feel I have adequately explained my, my big three reasons why the movie's a must see. Is, is there any point of yours you feel we, we haven't been able to make, we haven't sufficiently backed it up? No, 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 no major point. I do want to say that, um, I mean, the, the crimes that Harry Lyme uh, committed, those are, that, that's a very extreme crime. Just want to throw that out there. Yeah, I mean, I mean, kind kind of necessary. I mean, too to because we start the movie, you know, again putting us in Holly's shoes, where he's mad at Callaway. I mean, like, so he sold a couple tires or you know some gasoline. Why don't you catch a real criminal? And you know, and eventually, you know, the rug's like, okay. Um, it's about as as big time as it gets. We very much understand why this takes up a lot of Callaway's time and resources. Yeah, he's he's killing. He's probably killing a lot of people. He is, and again, the speech is so good to you know kind of to kind of point the finger at you to say like, okay, look, I know it's bad, but if you can get yourself to a point where they're far away, where they're dehumanized, where they're not people, they're dots. You know how. You know, that's the thing. I ask myself that question every time. Is like, I don't know how many dots w- would I pick. One? I don't know. I don't know. It's it's an avenue. I don't necessarily know that I want to confess on air, but I I debate it. My first episode with you, but I, I don't I don't think you'd go as far as uh, putting uh, fake penicillin in uh, uh, <laughs> selling fake penicillin to people. I I don't have the confidence. I I live in fear of authority and of getting into trouble of any kind. Like I don't I couldn't even be a Kurtz. Like I'm a, I'm a Holly through and through. I would be so out of place. Uh except I wouldn't be as brash or confident as Holly even is. So I don't even know that I have an avatar within the world of the movie. 
Maybe maybe uh, um, major, major Callaways. Uh, uh, somebody in the major Callaway world. Maybe I, I think the porter actually kind of sums me up to be like, "Hey, I saw this thing, but you know the investigation's closed. The guy is dead. You don't need me." That's probably that's probably my guy. May he rest in peace. All right. Well, uh, Oz, before we close out here, I I love a good double feature. And I always ask uh, hosts if we can, if we can make our movie part of a double feature. So I, in a, in your average movie night here, if you've got 90 minutes, the third man is in one corner. What would you pair up with it? All right. So I'm going very recent um, in the mystery and crime world. You know, the, the new glass onion, the, the night, uh, the nice. Yeah. Academy award nominee, but not winner. <laughs> Um, what's what's drawn the connection between these two for you? Uh, the mystery nature. And really the fun. I mean, the, the, the fun mystery. Which, um, have you have you seen it more than once? No. Okay, I haven't either. I, I, I want to put it to that same test I just laid out to be like, now that I know where this goes, am I still going to have fun? I, you know, as I was laying out that diatribe, like Knives Out was one of the movies I had in my mind to be like, this is how you do it. Like, I will watch Knives Out over and over again. Um, and and I loved Glass Onion too. You know, I I I maybe have some nitpicks that you know the spoiler for Glass Onion. Like tune out for ten seconds if you still haven't seen it. But that the you know the way the movie subverts expectations is to throw up its hands and play exactly into all of them. Um, I have mixed feelings on it, but overall the movie is a blast. I love Ryan Johnson. I I am here for however many Benoit Blanc movies he wants to make. And it is, it's just a fun time. So I think it's actually a really great pairing. Um, whose, whose crimes are worse? Harry Limes or, um, I can't even remember Norton's character's name. Miles. Miles is yes. his name. Miles something. I can't remember his last name. Yeah. I just remember Miles. Who's, I, I mean, it, it's gotta be Harry, right? I, I guess the question I'm looking for more is like, if you can only turn one of them in, who are you going to turn in? I think it's gotta be Harry. You're gonna okay. Here we go. Okay, I mean, that's... he's basically he's. This is some like biological warfare. He's he's going. Yeah. Go. Yeah, that's pretty. That's pretty tough. I think I'll have to agree with you. Harry Lyme is, because Harry Lyme also just takes glee in it a little bit. You know, <laughs> like yeah, and like that's, that, yeah. what's next? Like he's always looking for what's next. Like what is he gonna do next? Right, right, right. That's a oh, that's a solid pick. He's gonna poison the water. Like, what can he do? What, next? Uh, dude? Whatever's gonna make him ninety pounds of tube. It's all about getting rich. You know, in in a world devoid of riches. You know, against another post-war theme that Doctor Vinkel's apartment is just loaded with all this art and collectibles, all these things he has. When so many people, so many people have nothing. You know, that's the ethics. Is like, if I can get it, who's to stop me? That's a great pick. I, I love the levity, and I'm excited to revisit Glass Onion because uh, I had a blast, and I, I feel like it'll just be as much fun the second time around. I'm going a little more serious with my double feature recommendation, and I'm going older than 1949. I am going to go to uh, a, a man whose work is, I think, subtly alluded to in The Third Man with phrases like the master of suspense. So I'm going with a Hitchcock movie, and I am picking... Uh, 1943's Shadow of a Doubt. Have you uh heard of or seen this movie? Uh, I have not seen it. I I am I, I do 
am familiar with with some some Hitchcock works, but not not this one. No. Well, I'm uh, so the the connection I'm drawing is we we have similar thematic material. Shadow of a Doubt is a movie about a this teenage girl. She has a, a this uncle she adores. He comes to visit, and as the movie develops, there's an insinuation that perhaps he is responsible for horrible crimes, murders. And it's the same idea, you know, that Holly goes up against. How can this person that you idolize, that you love, how could they possibly be responsible? And the movie is about, you know, coming to terms with that. And the kicker, who should play this monster? But Mr. Joseph Cotton, who does a fantastic job. He's a great bad guy. He has, talking about the the Ferris wheel speech Orson Welles gets, Joseph Cotton gets a dinnertime speech in this movie. That is one of the all-time great bad guy speeches that goes after similar ground that kind of justifies the crimes. It's a great movie. I'm excited to talk about it because it is a top five Hitchcock movie for me. I absolutely love Shadow of a Doubt. It's so good. And I think it's uh, it's fitting thematic material here. So that is, uh, that's what I'm going to go with. Is that, uh, is that one in the, the 1001? It most certainly is. Yep, we are definitely going to get our Chance, we, we've done a lot of Hitchcock, so I, I've pumped the brakes on a few, but um, now it's out there. You guys know I'm, I'm chomping at the bit. Honestly, it may be the one I most want to discuss next. It's, there's a lot out there. Notorious is still out there, too, and Rear Window is still out there. So, you know, they'll all get their day in the sun, but Shadow of a Doubt, I'm excited for. That's fantastic. We, we went in opposite directions in the world. Which I love. Yeah, I, I like when they can go all that way because this is uh, kind of one of my favorite parts of the week because everybody listening on Thursday, we're going to put on our social media pages. Same question. What are you going to put into a double feature with Third Man? And I get great things that just make my watch list longer and longer and longer, but it's super fun to see where people take the idea of the double feature. And uh, that just rolls us into Friday where you'll go back to those same pages and you guys are going to have the ultimate say on where does the Third Man belong. Oz and I have said our piece. We say it's a cinema must. It's essential viewing, but we are only two votes. Ultimately, y'all are going to decide. So, again, make sure you are following us at Cinemusts on whichever of our platforms you prefer. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Thursday, you're going to tell us your double feature recommendation. And Friday, you cast the vote for its must-see status. So, Oz, uh, that that wraps it, dude. How was it your first time here on the show? That was great. I, that, that was uh... Uh, a great time, and uh, thanks for having me. And and again, to tackle to tackle a heavy hitter, to tackle something in the top 100 highest regarded movies of all time, according to the Sight and Sound and all that, um, I had a, a blast talking to you. I'm glad you enjoyed the movie. And next time, I, I look forward to you being able to to pick your own movie if if you're cool coming back. Oh, of course, of course. I, I look forward to it. Excellent. Um, one more time, one more time, uh, while folks are waiting for you to come back to cinemas, where can they find you in the podcasting world? All right. You could find us at, uh, at best picture cast on Twitter. Uh, that's the best place to get us. Follow us. Uh, we do some fun stuff on there. Stay up to date on what movies we're doing. We always do a lot of tournaments, uh, special episodes. So at best picture cast on Twitter. Great show. Great audience interaction. So everybody like you should you should be now for all the BPC crew we've had on here. But if you're not following Best Picture Cast, please do. They put on a great show. It's a lot of Oscar talk. It goes very in depth, and it's always a fun time. Um, and then Oz, before I let you go, you've you've uh, 
You've taken your lumps. Grant shows your movie for you. Um, next up, we have your cohort at Best Picture Cast, and also uh, from our sibling podcast, A Thousand One by One. We've got Joey up next, and you've chosen his movie for him. I wondered if you could uh, give us a hint or, or just tell us outright what's in store for him. Oh, yeah. No hints necessary. He's getting the, uh, the Planet of the Apes, the, the original, of course. Um, uh, Planet of the Apes for Joey R. He's a tough person to pick a movie for because I feel like he's seen every movie that's ever been made. Like, he's seen him like five times. But I, I had a sense that he had, he'd, obviously, he, you know, I think everyone is moderately familiar with what the Planet of the Apes is. Um, but he has never seen that movie, so you'll get him for a first watch. I'm super excited. And we're talking the Tim Burton one, right? Yes. Excellent. Good. <laughs> no, I'm uh, I'm very excited for this one because I, I think I've said this before. I, I'm not a guy who bears a lot of grudges against actors. I, I think, you know, most moviegoers have that actor that they just doesn't do it for them. And they just check out when they see this actors in a movie. And I, I tend not to do that. I tend to give people the benefit of the doubt. But Charlton Heston <laughs> is my guy. I struggle to see the appeal. And so he has not appeared on cinemas. And so this will be our first Chuck Heston movie. And um, honestly, you've, you've picked a movie for him that actually gives him a pretty good shot for me to give him a fair shake. So I'm excited. And I, I didn't know you had a Heston uh, aversion. I'm, I'm kind of now really excited I picked this movie. Yeah, we'll we'll see where it goes. I hope I'm not too uh, grouchy about it, but it's it's going to be a super fun episode, man. So thank you for picking it. And we're gonna we're gonna hear from you on that next episode, uh, introing it for Joey and I. So I uh, we'll we'll catch you next week. Cool. Sounds good. Well, man. Uh, thank you one last time for coming on. Thank you everybody for listening. We will see you next week for our episode on Planet of the Apes. In the meantime, please stay out of the sewers. Mm-hmm.